Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? A nation's constitution is supposed to symbolize its soul, its deeply held values, and its most important priorities. In Canada, it's been the focus of many fights over the years between Ottawa and the provinces and First Nations. Now, there's a new call to battle. But no level of government is actually required to protect our environment. So the governments could and kind of are leading us to a path to catastrophe without ever violating the Constitution. The answer to averting disaster? Stitching environmental rights into the fabric of this paramount document. Rights that would endure for people and mountains, rivers and wildlife. This week, a conversation about the need for a brand new overhaul of a very old foundational document. Linda Collins has written a new book called The Ecological Constitution. She is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, and she joins me now. Hello. Hello. I actually want to start at the end of your book. You you talk about what your parents told you when you were growing up, and I wondered if you could share that story and connect it to the reasons you think it is time for an ecological constitution. Sure. When I was first thinking about this book, I remembered that when I was little, my mom and my dad and my grandmother used to say, you have to respect the lake. You got to respect the forest. You need to respect nature. And what they meant by that was you need to be careful and understand that nature is bigger than we are. And we actually have to accommodate our own choices to kind of the biological bottom line of being human. So I think as Canadians, we understand that really well, that, you know, if you're not dressed properly and you're out in the middle of winter, you could get into trouble. And I think in order to get all of humanity out of trouble in terms of our global climate crisis, we have to start thinking that way systemically, that our systems of law and economics and politics actually need to respect the biological bottom line of being human. But why an ecological constitution? What does that achieve that, that, that what we have now can't? The reason why I think we need to insert ecological literacy into constitutions is because the constitution is the highest law of the land. So it's really the safety net or the backstop. You know, any kind of value that we hold to be fundamental, we enshrine in constitutions. So, for example, we don't just trust that governments are going to respect human rights. We don't just trust that the government is going to respect a division of powers between provinces and the feds. We put that in the constitution. That's our guarantee. That's where we put the things that are most important to us. 
And, you know, actually, if you just think about it logically, having a viable environment is arguably the most important thing. And I only say that because all of the other rights and powers in our laws depend on having a healthy environment. Well, then can you define in in plain language just what an ecological constitution is? Yes, absolutely. So an ecological constitution is one that takes a science-based approach to protecting the ecological foundations of society. Right now, our constitution doesn't include any obligation of environmental protection. It empowers the provinces and the feds to do certain things. For example, the federal government can make regulations about fish and waters where fish live. But no level of government is actually required to protect our environment. So the governments could and kind of are leading us to a path to catastrophe without ever violating the Constitution, which I think is really strange. And and actually, I think there is an environmental protection obligation in the Constitution, but it's just not written. But that strong language leading us to catastrophe, I mean, we have a large framework of laws and regulations across the federal government, across provincial governments. How can you say that? Well, I guess, first of all, there's no question that our environmental laws have done a lot of good. Certainly, we have brought some species back from the brink of extinction. We've reduced air pollution in some places, and all of those things are really good. But, you know, if you read the climate science, if we read the recommendations coming from the United Nations, and this science is accepted by our own federal government, we are on a dangerous path. It's not something I like to harp on. It's not comfortable for us to think about. But We are on a path to increase frequency and severity of natural disasters, possibly water shortages in some places, and multiple human health impacts from climate change. And and that is not anymore at all contentious. Everybody agrees that what we're doing now is not sustainable. We can't maintain our communities as we've known them if we continue on this path. So it's pretty clear something needs to change. Um, And yeah, I think the Constitution is the place to do that because the Constitution is enduring. It, you know, is not, as you know, easily amendable. And so it remains consistent even as governments come and go. And that's why we enshrine our most fundamental values in the Constitution, because we want to protect them over time. Uh, I want to talk for a minute about Bill C-28, which is before Parliament now. Um, Mm -hmm. This actually includes language about the right to uh, a clean environment. Um, I'm wondering how that fits into what you're talking about. Well, I think that bill reflects kind of an evolution of public consciousness and legal thinking. So your listeners may or may not know that actually most countries around the world do have an explicit right to a healthy environment in their constitutions. And some places describe it as a healthy environment, a clean environment, safe environment, whatever. But some kind of environmental right is explicit in over 100 constitutions around the world. Canada is one of you know the Commonwealth countries that are in the minority that we don't have such a right. But it's now really become quite well accepted all around the world that, in fact, the right to a healthy environment is possibly the fundamental human right 
again, just in the sense that all other human rights depend on it. So, you know, it's not helpful to have the right to vote if you die in a wildfire, <laughs> right? It, you know, a child that is in hospital with a life-threatening asthma attack isn't really comforted by the fact that, well, technically they have the right to equality under our charter. You know, you need that right to a healthy environment in order to support every other kind of right. So I think the recognition of the right to a healthy environment in that piece of legislation reflects the fact that this has now become really very well accepted all around the world. Uh, but again, that's legislation. It could be repealed you know, by the next government if it's passed. Now, we should acknowledge that, that there are ongoing court cases in this country brought against federal and provincial governments um, trying to uh, have a court declare that there is a right to a clean environment and, and a right to a safe climate. And governments have argued against those by saying it, it would hamstring them and force them to do things um, that they may be incapable of doing or would take away their ability to exercise discretion and govern properly. What do you say to that? I mean, perhaps by not locking it into a constitution, you can be more flexible in responding to the climate crisis. Well, you definitely can be more flexible and have more discretion as a government. But what we've seen over the decades very conclusively is that when there's a ton of discretion in environmental regulation, it doesn't work out very well for the environment. <laughs> so there's a large body of data showing that when there is a lot of discretion, as there is in Canadian environmental law, it gets exercised in favor of business as usual. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. It's not ill intent. But, you know, if you think about governments that are concerned with a three or four year election time horizon, you know, it's just obviously going to be too easy to sacrifice long term ecological sustainability to short term economic development. And of course, there are some politicians who will say that that not having it in the Constitution um, doesn't mean they're not accountable for their actions and that they are accountable to voters. And if voters want that kind of change, then they need to speak with their votes. There is a lot of urgency about this problem. It's not something that we can wait on. The United Nations has told us that we have less than a decade to make the changes that are necessary in order to prevent potentially catastrophic environmental harm from climate change, you know, including loss of territory in coastal cities and, you know, our, our island province, like the Prince Edward Island, for example. So we actually don't have a lot of time um, for prolonged national constitutional discussions. And where courts have an advantage is they can be more nimble. They can look at the latest science, and of course it's tested. They can cross-examine the relevant experts, and they do this all the time in other kinds of cases, and they can interpret in values that might not be explicit in the text. You talked about other nations adopting ecological constitutions, and I want to ask you about what Ecuador has done. So the famous 2008 Constitution of Ecuador protects not only human rights to the environment, but it actually protects the rights of Pacamama, which is an indigenous expression for Mother Earth. And that's a binding provision. It has been successfully used in litigation where harmful 
economic activity was destroying particular ecosystems. So it's a real right with actual teeth. There's a country very much like Canada that has also recognized rights of nature, and that is New Zealand. And also, interestingly, from a Canadian point of view, the recognition of rights of nature in New Zealand was also a part of the process of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. So under negotiations with the Maori peoples in New Zealand, several different ecosystems have been recognized now as legal persons. So this has applied to a river, to a mountain ecosystem that used to be a national park, and to a volcano. And in those cases, negotiating with the Maori people, the government passed legislation recognizing the rights and legal personhood of these ecosystems. They then set up multi-stakeholder management agencies led by Maori people according to Maori law to manage those areas. What, what about when giving rights to something like a river might collide with other human rights? And, and here I'm thinking of the court in Bangladesh that gave rivers rights and preserve the rivers, but that led to the risks of displacing the people who relied on those rivers for food and livelihoods. Yeah, it's such an important concern. And it would be possible to threaten human rights by a sort of absolute recognition of rights of nature. I don't see that as a threat in the Canadian context, um, because we do have quite a robust framework of human rights in this country. But, you know, when conflicts arise, it's actually quite doable to resolve them using the same kinds of tests that we use now. So, you know, there are cases now where, let's say somebody wants to exercise their freedom of expression, but they're uttering hate speech. So our charter has a test that says, well, the government can actually violate your freedom of expression in order to protect other important values. So you could do similar kinds of balancing exercises with rights of nature. But I do think that there's just huge potential here to really honor and give effect to indigenous legal ways of approaching the relationship between humans and the rest of the natural world by thinking about the personhood of nature. But Canada has already enshrined indigenous rights in the constitution. It's section 35. Is that enough? I mean, again, we only need to look at the results to be able to answer that question. So as you probably know, and your listeners are probably aware, there's a massive crisis of inadequate drinking water in Indigenous communities in Canada. It's pretty clear that Section 35 hasn't gone far enough. Now, it's gone some you know, ways, though. It, it has, has definitely it's led to significant ways. differences for Indigenous peoples in this country. Yes, Section 35 has done lots of great work. I think the real... Um, issue there is just how it's been interpreted. So courts have allowed government infringements of Section 35 rights for a wide variety of reasons. I do want to come back to Ecuador again, though, because yes. you pointed out that lofty language and, and an ecological constitution can have a lot of those lovely words. But it, in Ecuador, it shows that, that even those words don't necessarily mean a country will abide by them. Ecuador continues to rely on extractive industries to kind of meet those needs. Now, the policy there is that that is viewed as a transitional strategy as they transform into a more sustainable economy. However, on smaller levels, that rights of nature provision 
has been successful. It has shut down, for example, illegal mining, illegal fishing in a protected mangrove forest, and I could name a whole bunch of other um, cases. So litigants have succeeded in, you know, raising claims around violations of the right to nature, but you're absolutely right that it hasn't pushed Ecuador into a truly sustainable economy, although I think there's an argument that it's on its way. So, so far we've been talking about domestic constitutions, each developed by its own government. But you also consider the idea of a, of a global code and you refer to it as planetary solutions, which makes me think of outer space. What, what is that and why do you think it's needed? Well, that's a complicated topic, but basically a group of Earth scientists have identified nine planetary boundaries in their words, which are essentially Earth system processes that are necessary in order for the Earth to remain in a state that's friendly to human communities. Um, and one of them is a stable climate. There are others, you know, the stability of the ozone layer, etc. And a lot of thinkers in this field think that we probably do need some kind of international treaty of some kind to require countries to remain within those planetary boundaries. I want to come back to the end of the book. You write, this is a quote, building an ecological constitution is undoubtedly an exercise in optimism. And I worked on Parliament Hill for many years. I covered the constitutional wars. And to me, it seems extremely optimistic to consider this could ever happen in Canada. So why dedicate yourself to writing a book about it? So I think that whenever we're viewing something as impossible, it can be really useful to look around the world and across history to see if, in fact, it's ever been done. And we're seeing these ecological provisions go into constitutions all around the world in multiple different regions from Europe to Latin America. We've seen New Zealand accomplish this by statute. And we've seen a number of countries that don't put the actual words in their constitution get to the same place through judicial interpretation. And many of these countries have legal systems that are very similar to our own. So I think it's certainly difficult but we could ask the question a different way and we could say, what's the alternative? I mean, the pathway that we're currently on is not going to preserve a healthy, thriving Canada for our kids and our grandkids and future generations. So it's really just a question about whether we download these difficult conversations to our kids or whether we make the decision to do that hard work now. Linda Collins, I thank you for your time and for the book. Thank you. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Linda Collins isn't the only legal scholar pushing for constitutional change. 
I'm uh, Darcy Lindbergh. I'm a university professor at the law faculty at the University of Alberta. Um, I teach in areas of constitutional law, indigenous legal orders, and ecological and indigenous governance. And I'm also, I'm a Plains Cree. I'm in Amiskwichi, Waskahegan, or Edmonton um, at the moment. And my family comes from Musquechis in Alberta and the Battleford area in Saskatchewan. Linda Collins wants to see environmental rights brought into the Canadian Constitution. I'm wondering what you think of the idea. Yeah, I mean, I share this view um, with, with Linda. And my focus is really on Indigenous nations and their relationships with their ecologies and environments and how they go through a similar constitutionalizing process as well. And so for the broader Canadian context, it's something that I advocate for and, and interested in. And I want to dive into that, that question of Indigenous and First Nations constitutions, but just to keep it broader at this point, why do you think it's important to go this route? We are a very diverse society in Canada and what the Constitution does, even though we won't agree sometimes with what our neighbors are doing when it's constitutionalized. It hardwires it, as I had another scholar who was saying this um, a few days ago, into an area when we have that disagreement, we can go back there as well. And so the absence of that within the Canadian Constitution, as Linda talked about, is, is a really big area. It's a big absence that needs to be addressed. What do you think, though, that this kind of, of constitutional change might mean for Indigenous peoples? When we think about in a very optimistic view of a change um, to constitutionalize ecological rights, we have to be aware of the same sort of challenge of, of Indigenous peoples having a seat at that table and um, not falling off the table once those kind of negotiations go in as well. So, right. so to answer your question, um, a bit of an unknown, but we we know some of the past failings of, uh, again, that, that idea of representation and the time that is taken to constitutionalize things in that manner. It's a long road with Indigenous peoples needing to be there. And that sounds more like a process which is obviously incredibly important, but I'm wondering how you think it relates to the movements we've seen on the parts of First Nations against pipelines and logging like the Wet'suwet'en anti-pipeline protests last year and some of the opposition to old growth logging that we're seeing out here in British Columbia now. There's two ways of thinking about this. Um, and the first is um, that, you know, dichotomy of you know, economic development versus protection of territories and, and life worlds in there. And then there's a more nuanced way to think about it as the legitimacy of these huge decisions on what is going on in, in territories, right? So, so the Wet'suwet'en example is a really great one because what we saw there was um, a Indian Act um, form of governance versus their hereditary system, their house system there. And there's one way, like the really, um, the, the meat of the matter is whether territory is going to be protected or not. But there's also the other one of who has, has the legitimate voice in there. Um, you know, there's a question that often gets asked about the dichotomy between, you know, Indigenous peoples who want to protect territories and environments and those who are looking for development um, right. to bring material good to their communities. And often I say that can exist within the same person, right? And, and, and so just as Linda was pointing out, you know, we have systems in Canada and in Canadian constitutional law where we're balancing even constitutional rights one over the other. I think in this world, there would be a way that we're also balancing those as well. Now, I know I, know I talked to Linda about this, but I'm curious to know what you think it would mean to provide actual constitutional legal rights 
to things like trees and rivers from an Indigenous perspective? One is is really like thinking about what that actually means. Legal personhood, I think, is is something that um, a lot of just as there's such diverse views of different Indigenous nations, I think our relationships, the way we would kind of view that that relationality with our environments differently. So one nation might think that you know, like this river. Actually, we think of it as a person. Um, it moves. It flows. It regenerates where another nation might think of it as like not quite that right so there's one way there the, the second one is who is interpreting these rights i think is a large question right so um because we were so we're so young in our way of thinking um uh, from a canadian legal standpoint on that i think there's a lot of unanswered questions so where indigenous nations can offer that is multiple views on on their relationships their relationality to to animals to rivers that can start to work through these because actually in my work what i've seen is is um even though it's not couched in the same terms that for example, Plains Cree people have been thinking about that question about how are we related to, for example, buffalo or moose for quite a long time, and how do we set out our relationship that's really equitable and humane to to non-human animals, um, to waters, etc. Is that, is that what you mean when, when you say that Canada is young and it's thinking around these issues that, <laughs> that, that the Indigenous peoples have been thinking about this for millennia? Yeah, that's 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 kind of what I'm getting at, and that's um, you know I don't uh, I'm not trying to be disparaging about that, but the reality is um, Canada is a young country. Its constitution is young, right? It's um, uh, we have you know 150 years. What are we at? 150? I can't do the math right now. <laughs> <Neither>. 52, <laughs> 151 years, uh, or 154 years. 154, I think. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> struggling there on july the Um, first yeah (laughs) and we have uh, and we have other institutions that are older than that like um just you know the um what we've seen in the past week with residential schools around canada those schools have been running longer than canada has been a country right and so so when we think about youngness that's a reflection there and it's also a hopeful one because it means that we've we've tried you know this division of powers that we have in canada for 150 years and it isn't quite working for our ecological relationships right according to some people and so we can try something else where indigenous nations and again you know we haven't been unfailing um, stewards of the environment um, avoiding that sort of romanticization of how we've been living on the land but we've had a longer history on these particular territories to you know find what works to make mistakes to break laws to come to agreements as well and so that's kind of what i mean when i think about Canada's constitution is young where we have indigenous constitutions here that are quite older that can offer some assistance to how we think about um, ourselves as provinces in the federal government. That is a good note to end it on, I think, as uh, we see this talk and this debate move forward. Thank you for, for coming on today. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And that does it for us this week. Thanks, as always, to the team. Associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch, and I'm off for a bit, recharging my own batteries. They're renewable batteries, I'll have you know. Lisa Johnson will be in this chair, and I'll see you all soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.